This morning's gospel reading comes from John 16, 5 to 12, and 25 through 33. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whenever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that you are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming will when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly, And not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we pray that that truth would um, become real to us this morning, that we would um, not just understand, that we would believe, that we would see, that we would know um, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and in believing in him that we might have life in his name, Father. And um, we pray that your spirit would do its work this morning of glorifying Jesus and pointing us to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, You don't have to look very hard uh, to find articles about millennials. I mean, for the last, I guess, 10 years, it almost seems like an article or two a day is written about that generation of millennials. If you're looking at me and you're thinking, who are the millennials? You kind of forget. Millennials are people who were born from in between 1982 and 2002. So how many millennials do we have in the room? If you're born between 82 and 2002. Okay, 
the vast majority of the room as millennials. I mean, if you were to print out all of the articles about millennials over the last few years, you could probably start to like fill this room up because they're the most numerous age group in America right now. And so they get picked on a lot. They get analyzed to death. They get um, blamed for a lot of things. And so millennials are talked about all the time. But if there's one thing that almost everyone who analyzes this group agrees on, especially in these last few years, is that most millennials are just not very happy. That they have a lot of reason to be happy. They, they are, they're kind of coming on the heels of a lot of wealth in our nation that most of them have been given um, more than previous generations, that they have more opportunities, that mo- more of them go to college. And yet, over and over again, what we hear is that there are more millennials that struggle with depression and anxiety than almost any other generation before them. That they're more depressed at work, that they're not satisfied at work, that they don't like their jobs, that if you go to the younger end of that bracket, um, you find that those who are in college and coming out of college, that more of them are struggling with crippling anxiety than any other generation has really seen before. And it's not just in the areas that you might think it would be. I mean, areas of extreme poverty or areas where um, rates of abuse are very high. But the anxiety and the unhappiness and the depression seems almost kind of across the board and even spikes a little bit in those who have a lot of privilege and who have a lot of wealth. There was an article that ran last uh, month in the New York Times. It told a story about a young man named... Um, Jake, and basically this guy was, you know, good looking, like very good at school, he was athletic, pretty much everything that he had put his hand to so far in his young life, he'd done pretty well at. And he said when he hit about 17, his mom said that actually he ran 150 miles per hour into a brick wall, and not literally. Um, and uh, I heard moans like, no, that, okay, that could be taken the wrong way. He ran, <laughs> he had a fast car if he ran 100. He just hit a wall, and one morning he just curled into the fetal position, would refuse to go to school, and was screaming to his mom, I can't take it anymore, you just don't understand. And this person who had made all the right steps and who had done things pretty well um, was overwhelmed and overcome with the thought that what if I mess up? What if I fail? What if I get out there and I don't do it as well as I've done it before? And it just overwhelmed him. And he just decided it might be better to curl into a ball and not leave the house. As somebody who worked, I worked in college campuses for about 12 years. Um, I can totally say with confidence that that drive to create meaning according to what we do is really epidemic. To ground our, to ground our identity and what we're able to accomplish. And maybe it's because we have more at our fingertips. Maybe it's because there's more opportunities in front of us. Maybe because there is a lot of ability. Um, that that idea of being able to ground our identity and what we accomplish um, is crippling. And it's not just millennials. Um, The seed of that is in all of our hearts. 
and it creates deep unrest. It's that small voice that kind of whispers to us, if you recognize this voice that says, you are what you do. You are the sum total of what you accomplish. You know, it seems that peace is not something that comes very easy to us, right? That this idea of of peace that Jesus is talking about, not only in this chapter, but he talks about in chapter 14, that peace is not something that we're able... The more we... In fact, I think the more we try to manufacture peace in our lives, what we actually start to find is that the more um, unrest enters into our life. That peace is not something that we can manufacture, no matter how accomplished we are, no matter how successful we are, no matter how hard we try, it's always elusive and it always evades us. There's a, um, there's a scene in Herman uh, Melville's magnum opus, um, Moby Dick, and it's a, pretty much the, the, the whole book is the same thing. So it's a, it's a whale boat, and the whale boat is just screaming across a a turbulent ocean. And they're hot in pursuit of that great white whale. And it's all around them is is chaos, and all around them um, is just this this great, vast ocean. And you see, um, Melville describes sailors whose muscles are all tight as they're pulling at ropes and they're pushing on oars and there's screaming and there's cursing. And then he zeroes in on this, this one person. And this one person that, that kind of catches his eye is not holding an oar. He's not pulling on a rope. He's not sweating. He's not screaming. He's not cursing. He's completely still and completely poised. He's the harpooner. And he's waiting, and he is still, and he's poised, and he's quiet, and and out of Melville's pen comes this sentence, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness, not out of toil. To ensure the greatest efficiency in that harpoon, the harpooners of this world must come to their feet, must rise to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. And as we've meditated on these passages the last few weeks, as we've kind of entered into this upper room with Jesus, as he's talking with his disciples, he knows what's coming. He's moving towards his own death and his resurrection. He's preparing them to go out into the world, um, a world that is going to be scary, a world that is going to not understand them, a world that is going to kill many of them. And they're going to tell the world about his grace. I can't help but think that this is the picture that that Melville kind of paints for us. And that Jesus is kind of gently telling us that the Christian life, the life of discipleship and the life of following him is born not, it's born out of idleness and not out of toil. It's born out of a place of peace and not not out of a place of striving. This is what he's trying to tell them, that it's born um, out of grace and not out of of merit. To rise 
from idleness and not of toil and to go into the fray and the tribulation of this world, to have the abiding presence of Jesus with them is actually what he's trying to drive into their minds, the very essence of what peace is. It's not circumstantial. It's not naively optimistic. It's, it's an inner stillness and an inner calm that comes from un, being unconditionally accepted and loved by the very one who has overcome the world. And as Jesus speaks to these disciples, everything in their life, I imagine, feels like a raging sea around them. I mean, um, everything feels like it's getting turned upside down as Jesus, as we've talked about, is telling them, I'm going away. And they're saying, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. And he's like, I am the way. And they're still confused. And then in just moments, essentially, he's taken from them. He's crucified. And it's, it's into that turbulent moment that Jesus says these words that Kelsey read to us earlier. I have said these things to you that, and here's the key phrase, in me you may have peace. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And just moments before that, he said to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I wonder as they're sitting in that room to Jesus and they're listening to him say these words about peace, this peace that they have in him, I I can't help but think their minds probably wander back to being in a boat with him. And the the sea is, is crashing on that boat. And some of them who worked those waters on a regular basis they knew that this was a storm that they could not handle, that this was, um, uh, this was a storm that may very well take their lives. And they go and they wake Jesus up because he's asleep in the middle of it. And they say to him, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus calmly gets up and he walks to the edge of the boat and he just simply says, peace. Be still. And this, and this raging storm becomes like glass. I can't help but think that maybe in this disciples' mind, maybe not at this moment, but maybe later on, all those images start to come together and they start to think, what is my only point to you this morning and my main point to you this morning, that there really is no peace outside of Jesus. That there is no peace outside of Jesus. But in Jesus, there is peace that is given to us that surpasses any human ability to to manipulate your circumstances. It's a peace that surpasses um, your greatest achievement or your healthiest bank account or your most exhilarating romance. All those things, we think that there might be peace at the end of them or in the midst of them. The peace that Jesus is talking about is a peace of being unconditionally accepted, loved, and eternally united to the one who has overcome.
overcome the world. And it's from that peace that we rise. It's only from that peace that we rise to follow him. You see, Jesus is training, I've said this over and over again, he's training his disciples to go into the world. And they need to rise from idleness, not toil. They need to rise from the peace that he gives them, not from their own striving. They need to rise from the fact that they are already unconditionally accepted and loved, eternally so, united with him, not from their own ability to manipulate the situation. And Jesus is saying that it's from this peace that you rise to follow me. And so I just want to end this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm going short this morning because we've got a meeting. But I want, to say, I want to ask this question. What does that peace of Jesus actually mean for us? What does it look like? What does it mean for us? And I've got four short things that I'm going to tell you. And, man, I, they all start with P. I'm on an alliteration roll the la- this month. I don't know what it is, but it's just, it just came to me. And I, I apologize. Um, I apologize. I'm sorry. It's, it's horribly cheesy. Um, but I'm going to embrace it. Uh, what does this peace mean for us? Um, and not only do they all, they all start with P. I mean, peace and P. Yeah, anyway. Um, maybe you'll remember it because of this. I want to talk for a minute about persistence, provision, patience, and presence. Persistence, provision, patience, and presence. What does Jesus' peace mean for us? It means persistence. In the face of tribulation. It means persistence in the face of tribulation. Because as much as we want to think that it's the case, peace is not the absence, peace is not the absence of trials and suffering. And I know that we can all nod our heads along with that and say, I know that peace is not the absence of, of trials and suffering, but everything in my life is trying to manipulate a world where there is no trials and suffering because I think that if I get there then there will be peace but the peace of Jesus is not a calm serene life that's clipped from a magazine it's just not it wasn't that way for him and it wasn't that way for his disciples so why do we so often think that it's going to be that way for us I've said these things Jesus says so that in me you may have peace in the world You should not look for peace because in the world, what you're going to find and what you're going to experience, every single last one of us, is that you will experience tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Peace doesn't come from trying to overcome the world yourself. Peace does not come, in fact, The opposite of peace comes from trying to overcome the world yourself. It comes from finding your life hidden in the one who can and did overcome the world for you. What does Jesus' peace mean for us? It means persistence in the midst of tribulation, but it means provision that's born out of love. Listen to verses 26 and 27. In that day, Jesus says, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself, listen to these words, for the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The same Father who provided peace 
to his son as he entered into the turbulent waters of this world with his harpoon, so to speak, set upon you, calm and quieted by the love of the Father as he pursued you. That same Father loves you, and he's attentive to your voice. Do you know that? That the Father, Jesus is saying, I don't have to ask on your behalf because you're united with me now. Um, you see, what happen, what's going to happen with me overcoming the world is that you are going to die with me, be buried with me, and be raised again with me so that you are eternally united with me. And because you have loved me and you're united with me, you have the Father's love, you have the Father's ear, and he's attentive to your voice. And I wonder what that would do for us if we really believed it, what that would do for the way that we pray. Or what what it would do to maybe our prayerlessness. That the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth actually loves you and and is attentive to your voice, is attentive to your cry. He listens to you. And he wants to provide for you. You know, Jesus, when his disciples asked him to teach it, they're like, man, teach us how to pray. Like, you haven't taught us anything yet. It's like your, your officer training course is horrible, Jesus. And Jesus is praying and they're like, why don't you teach us how to pray? And Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And Luke records it even as a very stripped down, childlike prayer. And then he tells them that parable, you know, of the friend at midnight. And Jesus is saying, prayer is like this. It's like a friend who shows up at your house and you've got nothing to give them. And so you've got to go wake your neighbor up. You've got to bang on the door and ask for some bread. And Jesus says, that father, you know, your fathers, your, if, your, if your son asks you for something, you're not going to give him something evil in return. How much more is your heavenly father going to give you, he says, the spirit? That God wants to provide for you. He might not provide for you the way that you want him to. Because every good father gives his child what his child would have asked for if his child knew what the father knew. And the father loves you. Jesus says, trust me, believe me. If you can look me in the eye, and trust me, he loves you. Ask him. Ask him. But it also means, this peace means patience that is based in victory. Now think about this for a minute. It's patience... His peace is patience that's based in victory. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, we're going to talk about the Spirit in a second, but Jesus said the Spirit has come. The Spirit has already basically judged the world. Jesus says, I have already overcome the world. It's a peace that comes from knowing the outcome, even if it's not yet to its full fruition in our lives yet. It's a, it's a, it's a patience It's what uh, theologians talk about, the already and the not yet, that this has already happened, that we can talk about it in the past tense, but it's not yet to its fullness. And so we live in that time in between. We live within that tension, but we know the outcome. And and that's what peace looks like. I mean, it looks like, I'm going to use my second football illustration ever. Now that I brought it up, it occurs to me more, but I mean, sometimes I record I record the games because I hate watching them when there's commercial breaks 
and when there's like officials may have to make review, review plays, it takes forever. And so I record them and then watch them because I can do it in like a third of the time. But I never can help checking the score. And so I check the score and then oftentimes I just don't even watch it because I already know the outcome. But then when I do watch it, it's more just because I'm interested to see exactly how it played out. You already know the score. Take heart, Jesus says. I've overcome the world. You already know the outcome. All authority and dominion has been given to Jesus, and you are bound to Jesus. You know Jesus. I, um, I ran across, I guess it's a poem, um, by a Jesuit who I'd never heard of before named Luis Espinal. And this man was, he was assassinated um, in 1980 by a Bolivian gun squad. And not far before he was assassinated, but he was killed, he wrote, he wrote these words out. And I think that this captures what patience that's based in victory looks like. This, this, I think this captures peace. He says, there are Christians who have hysterical reactions as if the world would have slipped out of God's hands. They act violently as if they were risking everything. He said, the world is not a roll of dice going towards chaos. A new world has begun to happen since Christ has risen. Jesus Christ, we rejoice in your definitive triumph with our bodies still in the breach and our soul's intention. We cry out our first hallelujah till eternity unfolds itself. Your sorrow has now passed. Your enemies have failed. You are a definitive smile for humankind. What matter the wait for us now? We accept the struggle and the death because you, our love, will not die. We march behind you on the road to the future. You are with us. You are our immortality. Take away the sadness from our faces. We are not in a game of chance. You have the last word. Beyond the crushing of our bones, now has begun the eternal alleluia. From the thousand openings of our wounded bodies and souls, there arises now a triumph song. So teach us to give voice to your new life throughout all of the world. Because you dry the tears from the eyes of the oppressed forever and death will disappear. That's somebody who understands peace. That's somebody who understands that Jesus has overcome the world and has patience in the midst of it. But lastly, and most importantly, I would think in this chapter, especially that we have his presence. That peace means we have his presence. We have the presence of his spirit. Listen to what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. A little further down, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We could spend the next 10 weeks unpacking that. But think about what happens, and can you imagine their amazement 
that as they're still watching Jesus ascend into heaven, as he actually does leave them, that the helper does descend upon them at Pentecost. And you see what happens right after that at Pentecost, that basically, even as we sang this morning, all the hearts are opened. And all the people are exposed. And they all cry out. They say, what are we supposed to do? Because they're all convicted of their sin. And Peter, the fisherman who becomes the most prolific preacher, like 3,000 people are converted because he just basically says to them, repent and be baptized. The helper has come. The helper is here. The spirit, the presence of God is alive within us. And how do we know that the presence of God is alive within us? Well, it does that same thing over and over again. It convicts us concerning sin. And it takes us to Jesus. It shows us, it it takes us to the place where we realize we cannot, in and of ourselves, we cannot end this, we cannot fix this, we cannot rid ourselves of it. And it doesn't leave us there. The Spirit doesn't leave us there, but the Spirit glorifies God by taking us again to Jesus. The peace that Jesus leaves us, the peace that is only found in him, means we will have persistence. We have it in the face of tribulation. It means we have provision because the Father loves us and takes care of us. It means we have patience that is based in victory. Jesus has overcome the world. It means we have the presence of the Holy Spirit himself alive within us even now. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we, um, we thank you that even this morning, um, how wonderful it is that we can read the words of your son, Jesus. And Father, while there's so much more to unpack in Jesus' words, we thank you that what's seared into our mind, I hope, is the fact that Jesus tells uh, tells us this morning that we have in him, we have peace. Not in the world. What's common to all of us is that in the world we do have tribulation, but Father, we thank you that Jesus has overcome the world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.